It's the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. That's me. Another police shooting. The Chauvin verdict. Insight from a defense attorney who watched all of the trial, from motions to jury selection to the verdict. The sentencing of Antifa's first victim in our exclusive story of Antifa versus Mike Strickland is coming up. Today's episode of the Adult in the Room podcast is brought to you by Anchor.fm, the podcaster's best friend, VictoriaTaft.com and 1Acast. So let's jump in. A few things to mention before I get to the Andrew Bronca interview. He's with the Law of Self-Defense, Legal Insurrection, all about the Derek Chauvin verdict. And it's the shooting of a teenager in Columbus, Ohio, Micaiah Bryant, a 16-year-old, because now we're supposed to make this the next cause celeb and the horrible things about what police do to children. Because skin color is important to the left and not what she was actually doing. Her skin color was black. Her victim's skin color was black. And we're told, but don't know for sure, that the complainant, the person who called the cops, was the shooting victim herself. That's according to a woman described as her mother or her aunt, depending on what media you're listening to. And as we all know, first reports of these kinds of activities are always wrong. Always. And a lot of people didn't wait to find out what the facts are and were of the George Floyd killing, if you will, before making a judgment. It was just all about the videotape. It was all about the recording. And yeah, indeed, it was terrible. Let's just stipulate it was horrible, okay? Everybody knows that. But was it criminal? That's the question. And according to a jury, they thought he was. But now here we have it again, where the president, vice president, press spokesman for the White House say, well, this is a tragedy. And indeed it is. The Columbus shooting is a a tragedy. It is. Is it criminal? No. No. Absolutely not. I mean, did you see the police tape? If you didn't, you have no opinion on the matter. And you'll hear it on today's Adult in the Room podcast, which can be a bit jarring, especially because it's very real. And you will need your Kevlar headphones on to listen to it. But the White House has already weighed in on this, just like they did when the jury was deciding the George Floyd case, just like they did when the folks, Congresswoman Maxine Waters, the governor, said, I hope the jury comes to the right decision. Antifa, BLM in the streets saying the jury had better come to the right decision. And here we go again, a runaway narrative that is wrong, wrong, wrong. I'm not saying all the stuff in the George Floyd case was wrong, but it was a but it was a shape-shifting narrative that continued to shape-shift through the trial. It was astonishing, actually. And then they gave themselves all the big pat on the back and a victory lap after it happened. A guy is going to go to prison for 40 years. And yeah, he's a cop. And yeah, he participated in an event which led to the death of George Floyd. But you cannot allow this Columbus, Ohio police shooting to be in the same file folder as the George Floyd case. Although I would accept that there are runaway narratives, certainly in this case, as I've already explained. So here's how it went. The president of the United States, through his spokeswoman, 
said, The killing of 16-year-old Micaiah Bryant by the Columbus police is tragic. She was a child. We're thinking of her friends and family and the communities that are hurting and grieving her loss. We know that police violence disproportionately impacts black and Latino people and communities that black women and girls like black men and boys experience higher rates of police violence. We also know that there are particular vulnerabilities that children in foster care like Micaiah face, and her death came, as you noted, just as America was hopeful of a step forward after the traumatic and exhausting trial of Derek Chauvin and the verdict was reached. Okay, so let's take this apart a little bit. Let's go to the facts as we know them before this runaway narrative continues to gallop forth into ridiculousness. Okay. Someone was threatened and frightened for someone's life and called police. We know that. Should police not come? Should police or people not threaten others with knives? Because a knife played a role here. Before you answer, listen to the 911 call. And this is what police had to go on. 911, where is your emergency? Is there an apartment number letter? What's going on? officer got there, who's been publicly identified now and already doxxed online, so he'd better run for the hills. Maybe, uh, was it uh, Darren Wilson will have an extra room in his house for him? Because that guy's like in witness protection these days. Darren Wilson, the guy who shot Michael Brown. Now, listen to this. A teen with a knife threw down another teen or young woman in front of him, literally body slammed her down on the ground, threw her down on the ground. This is what the cops saw. A teen with a knife threw down another woman in front of him at his feet. A young man immediately comes up and kicks the downed woman in the head. Then the knife-wielding person who had just thrown down that woman goes to attack another person. How do I know that? Because that person is in a defensive crouch, a position, trying to kick the woman with a long knife away and was reaching back, rearing back to do something, presumably stab the other person with the knife. Throughout this whole time, the officer was saying, down, down, get down. 
What's going on? Hey, what's going on? Hey, 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 get down, get down, get down, get down. And he shot the threat and he stopped the threat. He shot four times to stop the threat. He was immediately yelled at by all kinds of adults standing around. All kinds of adults who'd already been standing around watching the fight. All of a sudden, the police officer is the bad actor because he has the best weapon, presumably. Clearly, he's the most powerful weapon. Gun stops knife. Knife was being reared back in the hand of 16-year-old, the 16-year-old young lady, and he stops the threat. He was immediately yelled at. You killed my baby. You'll hear it in just a second. You killed my baby. These are people who were standing there not doing anything. And I ask you the question, now they're not so dumb for not doing anything, trust me, because the person doing something was a person with a, what is it, 16, a six-inch knife? So not for nothing, they're standing back there. What'd they expect the police officer to do? And he could have tased her, I suppose, but it was an instantaneous decision. Here's how that sounded from the police officer's body cam. The guy who shot her, this is his cam. Lots of potty talk on this thing, so act accordingly. Hey. What's going on? Hey, what's going on? Hey, 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 get down, get down, get down, get down. No, you ain't shoot my fucking baby. You shot my baby. Back up. She had a knife. She just went at her. She's a fucking kid, man. Damn, are you stupid? A fucking kid? All right, what do you need me to do? What do you need me to do? What do you need me to do? Alright. What do you need? Right, you need to pull her down? This way. We're out this way. Alright. Hold on. I'll take this. Should police have pulled a taser, which was the plan for the shooting of Dante Wright in the Brooklyn Center area during the Chauvin trial? That was the plan. Taser, 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 pulls out her service revolver or service weapon instead. I guess their tasers are similar to guns. Seems like a kind of a dumb idea. But back in Columbus. So that chick was going to stab the other one. The officer saved the life of a black woman. Now you can say, if your black lives matter, he took the life of a black person, or you could say he saved the life of a black person. In fact, you could say he saved the life of multiple black persons. Who knows? Somebody called. We understand it might have been the actual victim of the shooting herself. We don't really know that, though, at this point. 
You cannot tell from the 911 call to this person's ears. I don't know what the girl's voice sounded like. And yeah, it's a tragedy. And you know what? It's even worse when people get in such bad fights that they grab knives to go stick somebody to solve it. Uh, This is not a cop problem. This is not a cop problem. I'm telling you. That didn't stop the bad reporting and the professional activists from arriving at the scene with their Al Sharpton memorial bullhorns. Bad information and intimidation. Quoting here, this is from the local paper. Shortly after the shooting, protesters with Black Lives Matter signs, megaphones, and loudspeakers joined the crowd gathered behind the crime scene tape. Kiara Akita, founder of the Black Liberation Movement, Central Ohio, which is a presumably BLM, connected group said she's not surprised that another police shooting happened why did they kill this baby she spoke aloud we don't get to celebrate nothing casey chainer said through a megaphone of the chauvin verdict in the end you know what you just can't be black is that true there was a person of color in the police uniform at this scene i'm sure he was thinking oh geez here we go It was a good shoot. I mean, a justified shooting um, as justified shootings go. But would the cops have done this with the George Floyd case and released everything immediately? Perhaps we might have a different result. Now, he might have been found guilty of something. Probably. Maybe Derek Chauvin would have. But we know perhaps one thing, it would not have gotten to this point of violence, vandalism, arson, looting. Had the truth come out initially. And that's the fault of the media. And that's the fault of these activists who burn first and never ask questions later. Now, if you've seen all the footage and the crowd and Floyd's friends in the trial, his ex and the drug dealer talking about the situation, it might have made a difference to people. It would have telegraphed his state of mind, his drugged condition, that he was going way over the line on fentanyl. He fell asleep in the car. You you probably didn't know that. He was asleep in the car. Like they kept saying, well, he was never asleep and that never happened to George Floyd in the trial. And it did, actually. He was high on fentanyl. He was high on meth. And one more thing. If he would have cooperated with the cops, if he'd gotten in the back of the squad car, if he'd been cooperative, not resisted arrest, none of this would have happened. You may not like the pretext under which the police were called. Police were called by the store owner for George Floyd passing bad $20 bills, fake 20s. And in all likelihood, his ex-girlfriend and the drug dealer were doing it too. Because, in fact, I know that because of testimony. Testimony that said, well, Maurice Hall, the drug dealer, tried to do it and he couldn't get it to work. So he had George go in. It's one of the reasons why the drug dealer took the fifth. And do you know what happened the last 90 seconds of George Floyd's life? I wish Derek Chauvin had put Floyd into a recovery position. But by that time, the crowd was beginning to get upset. Chauvin started to pull out his pepper spray for the second time to hold them back. 
something he never had to deploy. But as Andrew Bronca of the Law and Self-Defense website and Legal Insurrection said when I talked with him, this case and the verdict were all about optics and bad information by the media, Black Lives Matter and Antifa, and very, very little so-called justice. Let's listen. Andrew Bronca, thanks so much for coming on the Adult in the Room podcast and on KTTH Radio. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for the invitation. Now, does this Chauvin verdict make sense compared to the evidence presented at the trial you watched from beginning to end? Well, I mean, for certain values of sense, it, it doesn't have anything to do with the legal merits of the case. Um, the jury heard uh, weeks of testimony, weeks of jury selection, and within a, a basically a handful of hours, they came back with a guilty and all counts verdict in the context of a, a courthouse surrounded by an angry mob, barbed wire, National Guard, machine gun armed state police guiding them to the courtroom every day, um, mayors demanding a guilty verdict, governors demanding a guilty verdict, congresswomen demanding a guilty verdict, or there will be consequences, blood sprayed, pig's heads left at the ho- homes or believed to be homes of defense witnesses. Uh, all that obviously tainted uh, the proceedings beyond belief, and that doesn't even take into consideration the the various forms of um, prosecutorial misconduct that occurred throughout the trial itself. So I don't think these, these verdicts have anything to do whatever with the legal merits of the case. You called it the Oprah Winfrey model of criminal justice. Yeah. You get a conviction and you get another conviction and you get another conviction. If they had charged Chauvin with 15 crimes, he would have been found guilty on every single one of them. And it's possible he deserves to be found guilty on one or more charges. But that's not what this trial determined. What this trial determined is, does the power have the mob, uh, does the power of the mob have the ability to compel guilty verdicts regardless of legal merit? And we've learned that the answer is yes. Did the verdict make sense to you? I mean, you have to believe things were proven beyond a reasonable doubt that I don't believe were proven beyond a reasonable doubt. But of course, you know, a, a, a juror could disagree with my opinion. Uh, there's room for that. Um, people are wondering how he could be found guilty of uh, three different killing crimes when there's only one victim of a killing. Uh, but that's just the way the legal system works. And, you know, the legislature passes criminal offenses with specific statutes. And if you fulfill the elements for more than one, you can be found guilty of more than one. Now, normally, um, you'd be sentenced uh, concurrently anyway. So you're really only subject to the the longest sentence of whichever single offense carries that longest sentence. The other ones are running in parallel, the other sentences. Um, but of course, he's looking at a maximum on the uh, second degree felony murder charge of up to 40 years in prison. Uh, and the state is now, I mean, they announced it months ago, but it's of course, now that we have a conviction, it's in the news, or at least I've been talking about it. The The state is seeking in a sentencing um, enhancement because of various aggravating factors that he was a he did this while in uniform as a police officer while wearing a badge in front of bystanders in front of children uh, these are all factors that can aggravate a sentence above and beyond whatever the normal maximum is so the state will be pursuing that over the next couple of weeks and when he is sentenced which judge cahill will do uh, will there be testimony allowed the spark of life testimony that you talk about so often in your podcast yeah that'll be part of the um 
you know, both sides put together sentencing packets for the judge to consider. You know, obviously the state arguing for a longer sentence and the defense arguing for a shorter sentence or some alternative uh, punishment than a sentence. Uh, and the judge will take that all into consideration. To what extent they'll have in-court proceedings, uh, statements by the family, uh, certainly those are relevant to the sentencing, but to what extent that'll be televised, I don't know. Okay, back to the verdict for just a second. Uh, was this unauthorized use of force? Well, again, because we're talking about a legal proceeding, it depends on who you ask, right? I mean, the most of it was not, clearly. Uh, the the only portion that's really in I think a matter of dispute between the parties is in effect that last, really the 90 seconds, I think of the restraint, the last 90 seconds before the paramedics showed up, because it wasn't until the last 90 seconds that any of the officers had any reason to believe that Chauvin might require emergency medical care. Um, Up to that point, they had no reason to believe that their use of force was actually causing him harm. Uh, He was still moving. He was still breathing. uh, He was still presumed to have a pulse, like we're all presumed to have a pulse. Uh, But about 90 seconds before the paramedics showed up is when Officer King feels Floyd's wrist and uh, states that he can't find a pulse. Now, frankly, it's an open question in my mind whether Chauvin ever heard that, because it's at the same time that King says that, there's radio chatter, the crowd is shouting, uh, there's a radio call for a, um, there's a gun call where a crying child is being held at gunpoint, this is coming over the radio, Uh, That's all information that would be obviously distracting to an officer involved in, you know, just waiting for paramedics to show up to take custody of this George Floyd guy that they've got their hands on. So it's quite possible there was never any evidence that Chauvin was actually aware that Floyd had no pulse at that point. Presuming, of course, that we equate not being able to find a pulse with not having a pulse, which I think is probably a fair inference. But just because Officer King said it in those circumstances doesn't mean Chauvin heard it. Uh, There's no physical indication that he heard it. There's no acknowledgement. There's no, uh, it looks to me as if Chauvin, in fact, did not hear King's statement. And it was the only statement about a pulse ever made. Prosecutors always said it was Chauvin's knee on George Floyd's neck. And then when the defense showed video of his knee on of George Floyd's shoulder, that narrative all changed in midstream. So what killed George Floyd? Well, that's what gives me reasonable doubt. I mean, there's two real sources of reasonable doubt here. One is the actual cause of Floyd's death, uh, which, as you say, the prosecution changed their narrative throughout the trial. Their first witness was this uh, Donald Williams bystander, MMA expert, who testified that, in his opinion, there was a blood choke, which is impossible uh, by compressing only one side of the neck. And other state witnesses, other state witnesses testified that, no, you can't kill someone like that. Um, But nevertheless, on his closing rebuttal, Prosecutor Blackwell brought up Donald Williams again, said he called it a blood choke, ladies and gentlemen. But after that was questioned in the the trial proper, well, they changed it to, okay, it wasn't a blood choke, it was a respiratory choke. And then when the knee was no longer on the neck, it wasn't respiratory choke of the neck, but respiratory asphyxiation induced by compression to to the chest of George Floyd. Um, it was never coherent. They, and to my mind, they never identified an absolute cause of George Floyd's death. And there were lots of competing causes. I mean, the truth is, it's probably not one thing that killed George Floyd. It's probably a combination of things, things that were unforeseeable to the officers. I mean, they could not know when they 
made a lawful arrest of George Floyd, when they restrained the non-compliant fighting George Floyd, that he had 90% blockage of his coronary arteries, that he had pathological hypertension, that he had an enlarged heart that demanded more resources than would be normal for a person of his age and size, that he had a tumor, that he had uh, lethal levels of fentanyl in his system, that he was a lifelong meth addict. I mean, they couldn't know any of that, but almost certainly those were decisive factors in why he died. Um, If Floyd were a normal, perfectly healthy adult male uh, of his stature, I don't believe for a moment that a 140-pound officer putting his knee on Floyd uh, killed him in that last 90 seconds of his of his restraint. Mm-hmm. Did it make sense for the jury to find guilty on all counts? I mean, and what had to be true for that to happen? Well, I don't think it made... Listen, it, it doesn't make sense to me based on the actual evidence that was presented in court that the, those elements on causation and on unlawful use of force were proven beyond a reasonable doubt. I just don't see it. But the verdicts make sense uh, if you believe that if you don't vote guilty on every one of the criminal charges, when you know as a juror, the judge has told you your name will be released to the public at some point uh, whenever the judge feels that it's safe. But would it ever be safe? Um, they know what's happening outside. They know what's being demanded, that the the mob outside is demanding uh, anything other than guilty verdicts as a horrendous injustice. Uh, as white supremacy, as racism. Do you want to be the face of white supremacy racism for the rest of your life if you vote not guilty on any of these charges? I mean, that was the dilemma facing the jurors. And you can hardly blame them if they voted guilty for that reason. I mean, they they didn't go to school to become professional jurors. They were called. They were compelled to appear for jury duty. They were taken out of their normal life and put in this position despite what they might have wanted, it wasn't up to them. And now they're facing their lives being destroyed, their careers being destroyed, their children's lives being destroyed, perhaps their homes literally being destroyed, Uh, threats of physical violence against them for the rest of their lives. Many people may not remember, but after George Zimmerman's trial, years later, people were still trying to shoot him in the head as he was going to doctor's appointments because he'd become such a hated figure. The jurors know all this. Um, so it's, it's not hard to understand why they might feel they were compelled to vote guilty, regardless of the legal merits of the case. Okay, we have uh, President Biden and Vice President Harris and the governor and everyone in a monolithic political class, I mean, basically hyperinflating the importance of this outcome. Will that poison the appeals process? Well, I mean, it's hard to say, right? It's a, that's up to the appellate court. Uh, hopefully some of this energy will be diffused by then. I mean, certainly no defendant should be subject to a criminal trial under these kinds of circumstances. It, it was egregious. It was impossible to get anything resembling uh, what normal America would consider justice. I mean, in America, we typically define justice not by the outcome of a trial, but by the process of the trial. If the process was fair we consider the outcome to be fair. Even if we don't like the outcome, it's the process that matters. If we hijack the process and give it to the mob, uh, then the outcome can't be justice. And that's true regardless of the verdict. That's just mob justice, witch hunt justice. And none of us would want that for ourselves, for anyone we cared about. 
um, to be adjudicated in that fashion. We want, or we should want, everyone to have that fair process, criminal due process. But we've become such a hyper-politicized society, and there's political capital and monetary capital, capital to be gained from these kinds of cases. So when we see the president of the United States um, inserting himself into what's really a local criminal offense, and by the way, all the news coverage of this, all the Twitter, social media, Facebook coverage of this, invariably it's referred to in, in racial overtones. There was not a word of anything having to do with race in this trial. Not a word of it. The prosecutors didn't claim this was racially motivated. None of the witnesses claimed there was a racial motivation. The court didn't suggest any of this. It's not an aggravating factor. There's no hate crime charges here. There's no factual basis to believe any of this had anything to do with anybody's race. Uh, Chauvin himself, although he's recently divorced, when he was married, and he was married at the time this event happened, his wife happened to be Asian. This is not some white supremacist. There's no indication that he had Confederate t-shirts or any of that kind of nonsense. So the whole process has been hijacked for political purposes. And then it shouldn't be surprising that political actors like Biden come in. This is a longer game for them. They're, they're, they're fighting a political war in their minds against what many of us would consider traditional America. And they see this trial as one of the skirmishes in that war. So when they have a victory in the skirmish, which is how it's being described to me, by the way, if you go to my uh, YouTube channel, for example, you'll see throughout the, the comments after the verdict came in, hey, it's a victory. We won, you lost. And frankly, I think that's a pretty sick way to look at this. I don't think it's a victory for anybody. It would not have been a victory for me if Chauvin had been acquitted. Um, what I care about, again, is not the outcome. I have no personal invested investment in Derek Chauvin. I don't know him. I don't care about him as an individual. He means nothing to me. But I do care a great deal about due process because when we deny that to the worst of us, we inevitably also deny it to the best of us. And I don't think any of us would want to find ourselves in that situation. Due process. Do you think people actually know what that means anymore? You know, I don't know. It's frankly, it's it's uh, it's a bit of a dilemma for me, even as someone who does commentary on these kinds of cases, because, of course, I bring a certain, you know, I bring certain perspectives based on my life experience to these cases and not just as an attorney, but my whole life. I mean, the first president I ever voted for was Ronald Reagan. So that's part of my worldview, that kind of America. Um you know, respect for the Constitution. I don't consider myself a Republican or a Democrat or really any political party, I consider myself a constitutionalist. I believe in the U.S. Constitution and believe it has inherent and powerful value that it makes America truly exceptional, not just in the world today, but in all of human history. And of course, I'm an attorney, so I understand the implications of denying people due process. And those implications are not limited to just one trial. They ripple throughout our justice system. Um, but I don't know if other people recognize those things. So one part of my mission is to try to translate all that legalese, all that philosophical perspective into plain English to hopefully educate the public so they can have a more informed view of what's actually happening with these cases. You ought to be very afraid if you think that mob justice is justice. That is for sure. Now, appealable grounds are venue, sequestration, po possibly prosecutorial misconduct, um, can you explain those things and whatever all the other things that you believe contribute to an appeal ground? So all these things fundamentally go to the, the defendant not having gotten a quote unquote fair trial because um, the normal procedures that we 
the normal rules we have in place to help ensure fairness and um, ensure that unfairness doesn't enter the process, uh, many of them were circumvented. Uh, sometimes for nominally good reasons. Uh, if you heard Judge Cahill explain why he did not approve a change in venue or a continuance, which was asked for by the defendant repeatedly, uh, the judge's perspective was, look, this crime occurred in Minnesota. The trial has to happen somewhere in Minnesota. In the judge's opinion, there was no place in Minnesota that was going to be any fairer than this place, Hennepin County. It was all going to be. Now, what that's really saying, of course, is that anywhere in Minnesota would be equally unfair. That's right. my interpretation. Mm-hmm. Um, in which case, you shouldn't have the trial. Um, my position would be if it's not possible to have a fair trial, then you don't have a trial. You don't say, well, it's going to be unfair no matter where we have it or when we have it, and therefore you're just out of luck, defendant. Uh, that's not due process of law. Um, What's the But in any case, th- those will be grounds. You know, and I hear, I've never lived in Minnesota, so I'm not that familiar with the terrain. I hear that, like many states, it's really... Um, blue only in the cities it's red out in the in the suburbs so maybe a change in venue would have made a difference you had a different jury pool but of course you still would have had the mobs you still would have had the barbed wire and the national guard because you know those these mobs are not incidental they're organized or orchestrated George? Uh, they 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 happen before the trial they happen after the trial they they'll happen they happen last year they'll happen next year uh, they all serve a, a role in this this broader social war that the country happens to be engaged in this cold civil war that we're currently engaged in uh, so the the mob would have followed him a- anywhere i mean benjamin crump was going to be there no matter where the trial was he doesn't live in minneapolis i mean he goes to where the 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 skirmish is so that that certainly would have happened uh, so maybe he couldn't have gotten a fair trial anywhere else, but I still don't think that was a good reason to give him an unfair trial here. Uh, other grounds for um, a conviction to be uh, reversed here are what should have been a mistrial, frankly. Um, part of that is the the evidence dumping that the that the prosecution did both before the trial and throughout the trial. I mean, when the prosecution, who you know at most is going to have two or three dozen witnesses, that's all a trial could possibly allow for, hands over to the defense, a single defense attorney. The prosecution gives them a witness list of 400 names. They know the defense can't screen 400 possible witnesses and prepare for 400 cross-examinations. That's just an attempt to overwhelm the defense. When they give the defense 45,000 pieces of evidence to review before the trial, they know the defense attorney can't substantively review that. And then they go on to dump another 5,000 exhibits on top of the, the, the original 45 during the trial, while the trial's taking place, four to 500 new exhibits of evidence every day on average that that defense attorney is supposed to be arguing all day in court and then go home and, I don't know, stay awake all night reviewing hundreds of new pieces of evidence that just came in that might be relevant for cross-examination the next day so he has to review them or be unprepared for cross-examination. This was a grossly unfair process. The cumulative nature of the evidence. Um, You're not normally allowed to bring in multiple witnesses, witness after witness after witness, to provide what's effectively the same evidence. If if an event occurred in the middle of a football stadium, you're not allowed to bring in 45,000 witnesses to each give their own statement of having seen the same thing. It's deemed um, prohibited because it's cumulative. The sheer weight becomes unfair. 
But that's what the state did here. They brought in expert witness after expert witness after expert, none of whom had actually examined Floyd's body, all of whom were walking off, working off the one medical examiner report, the one person who had examined Floyd, making their own interpretations of that report, making the interpretations of the ME's report when the ME himself was going to come in and did come in and testify about his own report. Um, it was it was blatantly cumulative in nature. And then during the closing statements, uh, not the closing by uh, the first closing by Schleicher, uh, but the rebuttal by uh, by Blackwell, that was egregious prosecutorial misconduct. He repeatedly, not once, not twice, repeatedly called the defense liars uh, in his rebuttal. Uh, roughly, on average, every other minute, he referred to the defense as lying, telling a story, fabricating a narrative. And you're allowed to do that in civil court where Blackwell is normally a lawyer. Jerry Blackwell's not a prosecutor by profession. He's a civil litigator. And in civil court, you're allowed to say the other side's not telling you the truth. But if you're a prosecutor and you have the badge of the state as your authority, you're not allowed to say that the defense is lying to you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. You're allowed to say, hey, you should believe our version, our inference from the evidence, give it greater weight than you should give the defense, but you're not allowed to call the defense liars. And he did it repeatedly, including after being chastised by the judge at least twice during his rebuttal statement. He put words in witnesses' mouth that were not true. He deliberately conflated the term homicide, conflated the medical meaning of that term and the legal meaning of that term. Um, it was absolutely egregious misconduct in, in a criminal defense trial. That alone, that rebuttal alone, should be grounds for reversal in this case. So that brings us to the dream team. They had 14 lawyers. I know that because I saw that Keith Ellison and his number two uh, were active participants with the other 12 lawyers in this case and that they met often. They took a victory lap uh, on Tuesday after the verdict. And I mean, it was it was a particularly uh, I just felt like it was a little bit of an overplay to take a victory lap like that. I would say that you would be that guy and you'd stand up and say, well, justice was served. We did everything we could, et cetera. But to take a victory lap. And then furthermore, I want you to address that, the dream team, as well as George Floyd's brother being there with the attorneys yesterday and thanking Portland Antifa rioters and BLM rioters for staying in the streets it was particularly uh, scary, actually. Well, it just goes to show you that this trial was not merely a criminal trial, but it was part of that larger cold civil war that the U.S. is currently engaged in. Most of the lawyers were not actually prosecutors from Minnesota. Uh, only a couple of them really were. Uh, the others were all brought in from very uh, high-end law firms from places like Washington, D.C., um, these were private practice attorneys who volunteered pro bono to be soldiers in this skirmish for this broader social civil war that we're engaged in. So they took a victory lap because they won a battle in their minds, a battle in the greater war that they believe they're engaged in. Um, so understood in that context, it makes perfect sense that they would take a victory lap um, as opposed to, you know, there's criminal trials happening every day in that courthouse. You don't normally see this. Um, so yeah, it has to be understood to be in that broader social construct. Anything I missed in this particular case that you felt needed to be addressed in a conversation like this and that people need to know? Well, expect more of the same, folks, because, uh, you know, when, when somebody tries something and it works, they'll do more of it. 
And now the mob has learned that they can get the justice they demand by doing this, by demanding a guilty verdict or there will be consequences. There will be rioting, looting, arson. Uh, jurors know that this is what how they should expect to be treated if they're impaneled on a jury on any of these cases. Uh, and more cases are coming, right? They're already in the pipeline. Rittenhouse, the McCloskeys. And of course, there are use of force events every single day. We're a nation of some 330 million people, and there are bad actors amongst us who we hire police officers to deal with. So it's this is a this is a money making opportunity for people like Benjamin Krupp and a political capital accrual opportunity for politicians like Biden, uh, governors, Congress people um, of unimaginable pr- proportions, and they have a formula for winning. That's augmented by how social media divides the nation. Um, They're not going to give this up. They're going to double down and do it again and again and again until if it becomes unproductive. But we're not close to that point yet. So uh, uh, foresee an escalation of exactly this kind of circus atmosphere uh, in criminal trials for years to come. Andrew Branca, thanks so much. Law of Self-Defense is where you find him on Twitter and his website, Law of Self-Defense. And he is having a live chat with uh, the Legal Insurrection website, which is where he's been co-blogging this uh, entire trial, where he's seen every scintilla of the trial. Andrew, thanks so much. Appreciate it. My pleasure. I'm not a racist. Dude, don't get out of here. Don't put your hands on me. Get out of here. Don't put your hands on me. Get out of here, man. Do not put your hands on me. Do not put your hands on me. Put your hands on me. Put your hands on me. Before the nightly riots we've seen in the news, there was one case. The first case, the case of Mike Strickland. Now at noon, another court appearance today for the man caught on camera waving a gun at protesters in Portland last month. And now he faces a lot more charges. Michael Strickland faces 21 counts connected to that incident. He was a journalist who was beaten by Antifa and Black Lives Matter protesters. And he defended himself from the mob with his legal gun, and not a shot was fired. Our position hasn't changed, our client's position has not changed, that he is not guilty, that he was using the um, weapon to protect himself, and he was doing so within his rights. The only one hurt that day in July of 2016 was Mike Strickland, and the only one punished was Mike Strickland, the victim. I'm of the firm and steadfast opinion that when they come for Strickland's rights, they're coming for mine next. See, Antifa says it's anti-fascist, but Antifa 
is really anti-First Amendment. It's going back to the street violence of the 1920s and 1930s as a technique and a tactic. And the court system doesn't realize it's happening. This is the story of Mike Strickland. District Attorney, call the case. And good morning, Your Honor. We're here in the matter of State of Oregon versus Michael Strickland. It's case number 16CR41718. On behalf of the state, Kate Molina, M-O-L-I-N-A, bar number 123989, also present with DDA Todd Jackson. Uh, Your Honor, this time in place is set for sentencing. Mr. Strickland is present with his two counsels as well. He's out of custody. And for the record, Your Honor, Jason Short, S-H-O-R-T, bar number 003860, on behalf of Mr. Strickland, and we're ready to proceed uh, with the motion of sentencing. Thank you. And Your Honor, for the record, it's uh, Chris Trotter, T-R-O-T-T-E-R, bar number 135071. Um, and before we move forward to sentencing, as we discussed in chambers, we just Just uh, before you get to that, uh, I, know that the, I know that the Sheriff's Office told me that they were going to uh, emphasize the people how important it is that there be no recording pursuant to court order. The Oregonian has called and was given permission earlier to do uh, recording and, and they have permission to do so. But other than that, no phones, computers or electronic devices. All right. If you're caught using one, you will be excluded. It was May 3rd, 2017 in the downtown Portland courtroom used by Judge Thomas Ryan. The players were all set for Strickland's sentencing after being found guilty on all charges. The small gallery of people collected looked like they were coming from a Rotary Club meeting. They included a former state lawmaker, a local radio talk show host, retired airline pilot, videographer, seated and ready at the appointed time. That was Strickland's side. I sat in the back, obeying the rules against recording, which I regretted after a while. On the other side, strolling in at their leisure like they own the place, were people many now know to be members of Rose City Antifa and their buddies. Strickland knew them all. After all, many had been in his recordings. They reminded me, I'm not kidding, of the cantina scene from Star Wars. There was the Antifa honcho, the diminutive and trash-talking Luis Marquez, You'll recall him going on camera with then-Minnesota Congressman-turned-Attorney General Keith Ellison. Ellison held up an Antifa handbook in separate photos. Marquez is a multiple arrestee at Portland riots because he's a violent man. Most recently, he made national TV news when he was interviewed in Seattle at the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, CHAZ, supposedly an homage to the life of George Floyd. It was a takeover, basically, of a neighborhood by radicals where at least two people ended up shot to death. Luis crossed state lines to be there and support the effort. The only time that we are heard is when we burn shit down. I think it's important. Oh, sorry, go ahead. And if white America doesn't want to get right, they're going to see more burning, more looting, because shit needs to be equal. The jails are filled with people that look like me and not that look like you. Your kids are going to college. My kids are going to jail because they're brown and there are suspects walking down their own streets. So... I'm from Portland, and I love what's going on here in Seattle, and I stand in solidarity with him. There was his Antifa friend, a woman with two-toned hair who waved at Marquez as she came into the courtroom. She quietly sat next to him. 
There was Jesse Sponberg, a Portland gadfly and activist, and if he isn't an Antifa member, is at least a very big supporter of the mob. Sponberg was among those intimidating Strickland back up the street after he pulled the gun on the mob and who ended up nearly getting arrested in that incident himself. Being arrested is something with which he's familiar. He would later be arrested for beating up people at the Portland airport, neutralizing the threat, he would call it, at a meeting by Trump supporters at the airport after the election. His attorney made him apologize on video before turning himself in. And here's his apology. I support the decision made to neutralize the threat because it was once again coming from the same group of violent white supremacist religious extremists who were once again manifesting another dangerous situation inside the airport at a time of great national distrust. The national distress to which he refers was the election of Donald Trump. Antifa would block traffic for people trying to make their flights that night. They called it noble. Everyone else thought they were a big pain in the ass. Sponberg smelled of cigarettes in sleeplessness, I wrote in my notes from that day. He had to leave for multiple smoke breaks. There was another Antifa regular who arrived on bicycle, Philip Stan Schaefer, another multiple arrestee of Portland protests, back when lawbreakers, vandals, and violent people, you know, used to be prosecuted. He waited long enough to find out if Strickland would have to serve time, and then walked out when he got what he wanted. Philip Stan Schaefer was booked into the Multnomah County Jail on charges of second-degree robbery and coercion on Sunday, five days after he was filmed by a local TV station getting into a shoving match with another man during a protest. Remember that when local TV stations covered the protests and all the violence? They don't do that anymore because they get hurt. Ben Carenza was in the courtroom. He sat two rows in front of me, but his female friend... She, another multiple arrestee about whom I've reported, decided to sit next to me in an attempt to intimidate me, of course. Before the trial, she made fun of my looks, my job, called me a stalker for writing about her and Carenza, and often writing what she hoped were scathing and often misspelled comments on my victoriataft.com website posts about the case. On this day before the hearing started, I asked her several times during which time she was berating me and trying to intimidate me if she was threatening me. And frankly, I was hoping she'd say yes so I could get the bailiff over there and get it on the record. But someone on Strickland's side, thinking she was doing everybody a favor, sat between us, thus ruining my chances of getting her threatening behavior on the record. Oh, well, I'm sure there'll be a next time if I ever cross paths with her again. Well, they'd come to gloat, all of these people. They'd gotten one over on Strickland, all right. And they were hoping that they would get the actual prosecutors, the man, the people against whom they'd been railing all this time to do their job for them. And you know what? They succeeded. Very odd dynamic. But here we all were, waiting for the judge to mete out punishment. And who stood up to give a victim impact statement? Why, it was none other than Ben Carenza, the man who started the entire incident, conspired with others to conceive it, and testified to that effect in court. Carried it out, 
He roughed up Strickland, his 400-pound frame against Strickland, who was less than half his size, and sparking the entire incident. He worked with a mob that day to get Strickland thrown out of a public event on a public street because there were their streets. And here he was asking for mercy for Strickland, asking that he not be jailed. Why? Who knows? Good morning, sir. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Can you uh, state your whole name? Yes, my name is Benjamin Parenza. And spell your last name. K-E-R-E-N-S-A. All right. Uh, what, do you, what would you like to say, sir? Your Honor, um, uh, the impact of the offense uh, in this case uh, has been significant on my life. Um, from just days after the offense was committed um, up till today, I've uh, been threatened, stalked, and harassed by supporters and friends of the defendant. Um, that behavior persists even to this morning. He means me writing about him. Other people may have written or produced content about Carenza. Later, Ben Carenza would go to a judge and ask that Strickland and third parties, me, be ordered not to utter his name. Denied. He later tried to change his name and even claimed to have become a Muslim. But it turns out that officials take a dim view of people who are multiple state and federal felons which Carenza is, changing their names to avoid scrutiny. Aside from that, I think what the defendant did was a mistake. Um, I can't support a prison term, uh, which I understand may be in the sentencing guidelines in this case, and I would ask that you show the defendant leniency. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Carenza's would be the only victim impact statement, probably because he's so used to being inside of a courtroom, usually, however, as the defendant. Because the other victim identified in court records, remember, eight were John or Jane Doe's, identified by their hoods, masks, or backpacks. Deputy DA Todd Jackson asked for Strickland to spend 10 days in jail for each of his 10 victims. And additionally, that you impose a jail sentence in this case of 10 days for each of the victims. There were 10. And also a 20-day jail sentence on the disorderly conduct charge for the widespread panic, alarm, mayhem that his actions caused among the crowd at uh, the crowd generally. Uh, that would be a total of 120-day jail sentence. Um, of course, we're recommending credit for time served, uh, all other credits on that. Uh, we'd ask that he be ordered to begin serving that sentence today and serve it in full uh, in one big chunk. Later, the prosecutor said he wanted the judge to issue a no-contact order for the victims. Yeah, about those victims. As you're talking just about the 10 identified victims correct correct so um and some so and some weren't identified well they or i mean they, they weren't i'm not i didn't say name yeah i the, the, well mr jackson give us the names who do you want that there to be no contact with we're going to need that for the but i'm going to order i'm inclined to order i'll hear what counsel has to say about it no contact means no contact as we 
traditionally use it. That means no contact by any means. If a person is going to be named on this list, no electronic communication, no Facebook posting, no contact with that person whatsoever. Mr. Strickland, this means that if you're in a restaurant and uh, say it's a small restaurant and, a, and the other person comes in, uh, it, you know, if it's a small enough location, you need to leave even though you were here first because the no contact provision is a condition of your probation. It's not an order with respect to that. It's an order with respect to you. Do you understand that? Yes, sir. Okay. Um, can you write out a name on a... Well, don't... Mr. Coe, you can keep working on what I've already given you. Do you have the names? Uh, there are two named individuals that participated in this trial. Uh, Benjamin Carinza, who spoke today, and also Malcolm Shattuck. Uh, those are the two people who we have names for. Okay. That's the only ones you're asking for? Well, I, I mean, they were described. They're in the videos. Uh, we don't know their names, um, but well, we've got of course I would support a no contact order with those people as well. We've got to have a name. So, you want to be heard further on no contact with those two named persons? No. Okay. All right. So that'll be a condition of probation. No contact. Anything else from the lawyers? No one has ever seen a list of the so-called victims that day except for the guy who started it all and a quote-unquote peacekeeper who Strickland believed was trying to intimidate him that day, July 7th, 2016. So Strickland got out of the county to find a cheaper place to live because the judge would not let him work on any media projects. And then the judge fined him between $100 for each misdemeanor to $200 for each felony count and each victim eight of whom were never named. First, they staged an attack to stop his First Amendment right to be on a public street. He responded by using his Second Amendment right to forestall the attack, though the judge somehow knew that he was not going to be beaten up that day. Then the judge finished Antifa's job for them by denying both his First and Second Amendment rights. They took his job. He was not allowed to video anything. He couldn't video weddings or even bar mitzvahs, nothing. He had to find something else to do for most of the next three years while he was on probation. Eventually, his parole officer got to pick and choose the jobs he was allowed to take. After taking his job, they took his freedom. 40 days in jail. Credit for time served. All Senate Bill 936 credits. A motion for a new trial was later denied. Next time, the appeal on Antifa versus Mike Strickland. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Adult in the Room podcast. To keep the programs you like to listen to, please rate this podcast with a fantastic five stars on your Apple podcast app every time you listen and give me a great review plus of course subscribe to the podcast it makes a difference with the big tech algorithm and the big tech oligarchs and it makes us easier to find please get in touch with me on all the big tech stuff yeah we're still there using the names victoria taft or the adult in the room podcast on MeWe, parlor minds facebook twitter and instagram 
Thanks to 1A Cast for imaging, editing, and production. The fantastic song is Gospel by the March 4th Band of Portland, Oregon. Music for Antifa versus Mike Strickland is Ride or Die by Raps by RC. The Adult in the Room podcast is also a production of Flamingo Road Studios. Remember, head up, heart out, and strive to be the adult in the room. Till next time, mischief managed. <laughs>